Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles and open up to the, the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 25. For the Pew Bibles, it's page 57. We're looking at Exodus 25 this morning. We'll be starting with verse 1. And if you've been keeping track, you'll notice that we are skipping a little bit. When we last left Moses and the Israelites, they were at the base of Mount Sinai. And out of amazing grace last week, the Lord reminded His people of a generations-old promise. With thundering majesty, Yahweh offered a divine proposal. The people with one voice declared their love and commitment, a sacred covenant, a betrothal, as we talked about last week, resulted. Now, the giving of the law follows next in our Bibles from where we were last week, but we're going to jump ahead and we're going to look at events that take place after that. We're going to come back this summer to the Ten Commandments and we'll consider them one at a time as each seeks to guide our understanding of our relationship both vertically and horizontally, both in terms of God and our fellow man. This morning, however, as you've got your Bibles open to Exodus 25, we're going to consider what happens next after the giving of the law. So, from Exodus chapter 25, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins, dyed red and hides of sea cows. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord intends to build a home so that he can be with his people. And Moses, as we heard, is provided with a list of the needed building supplies. And the list includes lavish and exquisite resources, uh, fine metals, rare jewels, as well as other stuff that we still know to be valuable even today. I mean, we heard about gold and silver and bronze and other precious gemstones, but we also hear of colored thread and yarns, pricey because of the high cost of the dyes. For example, the first blue color that's mentioned was made from the liquid of a, of a shellfish that could be found in the Mediterranean Sea. You had to catch this shellfish, then open it to draw the bluish liquid out of them. And the second color, the red, uh, or that came from the red, was mixing the red with this blue dye. And the red was gathered from eggs and bodies of a certain type of worm. So just from the dyes alone, you can imagine the labor involved in getting this special dye and therefore why it was so valuable. But we also hear about skins from rams and porpoises or sea cows uh, prevalent in the Mediterranean Sea believed to provide waterproofing to the outside of the tent. And acacia wood, which if you're not familiar with, is hard enough to resist insects and yet light enough to carry. Oils, spices, incense, an incredible list of supplies. But you'll notice, rather than sending Moses on a major run to Home Depot, Rather than sending Moses to Costco, God does something surprising, something we might look past normally. God holds a fundraiser. We see here in Scripture the first capital campaign as God initiates it among the people. 
And this is a little strange, isn't it? I mean, this is, is, is odd. I mean, think about it. This is the same all-powerful, all-purposeful, all-resourceful God who provided the ten, count them ten, miraculous plagues that took down the major world empire at that time in order to free his people. This is the same God who parted the waters of the Red Sea so that those who he was protecting could get across on the one hand and those who were oppressing his people would be drowned on the other. This is the same God who going through the wilderness provided manna from heaven, provided water from a rock. And yet this God who's provided continually for his people, this God who has again and again proved that he alone could provide for his people, asks his people, to provide the materials for his new home. Don't you think there was probably at least one person, I mean, out of two million, one person who said, seriously, really? God needs something? He can get water from a rock, but he needs my gold? He can bring Mount manna from heaven, but he needs my help to build his house? God asks his people to provide the materials. And we know that God could have provided the means. And in one sense, we also know that God did because all of the things, many of the things that God asks the people to provide were most likely given to them on their way out of Egypt. If you don't remember this part of the story, as they were leaving Egypt, God commanded Moses to tell the Egyptians to give gifts. Gifts of very expensive items. They, in one sense, they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians were more than happy to give this stuff. They almost considered it a payoff. Fine, please, go. Here, take it. Go. Leave. And so in many ways, the things that God was asking for are things that God had provided through the Egyptians. But really, I hope we can see right from the outset, the need for materials was not really the issue. It's not really a matter of God had run out of supplies. It's not a physical issue that's here. It's more of a spiritual one. God wants, and we see this so powerfully here, in the oddity of God making, taking an offering, God wants our participation. God wants our commitment. If you think about it, this... this Despite how odd it is in chapter 25, if we step back and take a bigger view, it makes sense. I mean, we were created to do good works. When God breathes life into Adam and Eve, he doesn't say to them, well, that was fun, wasn't it? Great. God's very specific in saying, look at this. Look at all that I've provided for you. Look at it. And they looked around at the majesty of creation, and God was specific. Fill the earth. Do good works. Show me what you can do. Look at the canvas I've given you. Show me what you can create. So we are created to work, to show what we can do. And we are blessed. We are provided. We are equipped. We are endowed by this God in order to get involved. We're not just given something so maybe, you know, we might do something. We're endowed, we're equipped in order to participate, to get involved. This God wants us. He desires for us to give and to contribute because in many ways that we, I don't know if we engage, giving, the idea of giving, in all of its forms, giving is the response. This God initiates with us. This God pours out grace, provides, reaches out to us before we reach out to him, acknowledges us before we acknowledge him. And our response is to give. Giving is the response. It's what we are called to do. It's the only thing we are called to do. You really boil it down is to give in response to the initiative of this God. And in a way that makes us uncomfortable, these are the kind of sermons that most people stay home for. Money. Money. We're talking about money today. 
Everyone's like, okay, where's my wallet? Money. Our tangible possessions go beyond your money, but your possessions, our possessions, are the concrete, tangible reflections of what we are about. I love it when people say with sermons, you know, I, that was great, but what, is it, what does it mean for me? What am I supposed to take away? This sermon's going to hit you right between the eyes, because I'm going to hit you and me right where we live. Right with the stuff that we engage in all the time. You can't get more concrete or tangible than your money than the things that you have. And God engages that reality because that is probably the most practical expression of what we are about. God expects us to contribute financially to the work of his kingdom. God expects us to live our lives as the masterpieces that we were created to be, doing the good works for which we have been created. But why? Why when God can take care of all of it? Why when so often God does? I don't know how many of you had this uh, custom in your family, but when I was growing up, before I was old enough for an allowance to figure out chores and that kind of thing, um, I remember the first time this happened, and then every year I kind of it, it caught on. But the first time that my dad pulled me into a room right before Christmas time, before Mother's Day or birthday, and slipped me ten dollars, and I thought, great. <laughs> and then he said, "Go. We're going to go, and we're going to buy something for your mom." Now, I would love to say I was this wise, but after a while I started to go, really? Can't we just get rid of the middleman? Why don't you go buy something for mom? Put my name on it. I mean, seriously, I mean, I mean if you're not going to give me the $10, what's the point? You're giving me the 10 bucks. it's your money, giving it to me to go buy something for mom. But I never would have said that and survived with my dad, by the way. Um, but that wasn't the point. And for $10, there's not much you could buy then or now. And, you know, I, we'd go out and we'd find something. And I look back now on different things you'd buy, you know, like a pot holder, you know, that had a penguin because my mom loved penguins or something like that. And my mom would open it and would just be beside herself. And when I was younger, I thought, do I know how to spend money or what, huh? <laughs> when I got older and I saw the collection of things, I realized, oh, my gosh, why is she holding on to this stuff? Why did my dad give me money that was already his? Why did my, my dad could have gone and just gotten a gift from my mom and put a name on it. Why, why did my mom value something that really wasn't all that elaborate, something that most people wouldn't hold on to? Because the, the point of it was not about the gift. It wasn't about the money. It was about learning. My dad was trying to teach me about participating, being a part of a family, learning commitment through appreciation, through giving. And my mother valued that because more than, than other things that she may have wanted or could have been given, that's what it represented. The time that was taken, the appreciation, the commitment. And in the same way, God is not fundamentally about what we give or what we do. And many of us don't hear that. God is not going, that's it. God's not interested so much in what we give or what we do. The Lord is not even fixated on the size of what we give. Or the impact of what we give. God doesn't even lay any of that out. He doesn't say any of that to the people here. God's focus is on our hearts. God cares about our motivation, our desires. The Lord seeks our heartfelt devotion to him most of all. Because everything else comes from this core commitment to the Lord. If you're not sold out, if your heart's not committed to this God, that's what I'm trying to say. Giving is the response. Nothing else will follow. You've got to just give your heart to this God. That's what this God wants. And that's why we hear, and again, another surprise, is that God says to Moses, God takes an offering, not Moses. God tells Moses, I'm taking an offering. And you would expect that God would say, thou shalt give. 
right? I mean, this follows after the law. Thou shalt give and then would specify, you're given this, you're given that, you're given this over here, and you better pony up and give up over here too. But God doesn't say that. God says, I'm taking an offering, but tell each person to give as they are moved in their hearts. Do we have any doubts that this God could have compelled some giving? This God could have forced the issue? There's no guilt here. There's no manipulation. There's no forcing because God wants us to give ourselves freely. God wants us. Not, it's not about the material things. It's not about our money or our possessions. God wants us to offer ourselves and our money and our possessions are a manifestation of our identity, an extension of ourselves. Beloved, we, we shy, we dodge around this, and we don't like to hear it, but it is, doesn't make it any less true. How we give, what we give, where we give, reveals more than anything else what we believe, where we place our faith. Worship, at its heart, is about giving. Worship is about giving away something. Giving is worship. Worship is about giving affection, giving devotion to something else. Worship is about where we place our value. Where we place value. Worship is an, a reflection of our value system. What we devote ourselves to, we value. What we devote ourselves to has meaning, has significance to us. We know this. Whenever you go over to someone's house, and you don't have to confess this if you do, but most of us, when we go over to someone's house or we see someone else, there's two things that we always inspect, we always look at. First, we look at their car. Whenever you meet someone, you see their car, you always look at their car. Maybe, you, maybe you're not even a car person, but you look. We look at their car, and when we go to someone's house, most of us get a tour or ask for a tour or look around and whether we acknowledge it or not, inspect the house. Why? Because a house and a car very much embody something about the identity of that person. It says something. How a home is kept communicates something. How a car is kept. And let's ask ourselves, when we look at that house and when we, or that car and we see a certain level of work that's been put into that car, man, that car doesn't have a scratch on it. That car is pristine. Look at how it's cleaned out. Man, this house, look at the, the decorations. Look at the work that's been put into this home. When we see the work, the detail, the investment, that indicates that this person values this car, this house. See, some cars, dents, the glass broke, and they've got like duct tape over the window. They've got stuff in the back of the car. You can't remember the last time it's been cleaned. You know something about how much that person values that car. We look and we notice because the signs of work, the detail, the effort says something about value. So, beloved, I put it to you this morning, and it's a tough question for you and for me. How much is God worth to you? How much is God worth to you? How much is God worth to you? In the same way that people evaluate our homes and our cars, don't kid yourself, they evaluate our relationship with this God. We can say we're a Christian, we can say we go to church, we can say we're a member of grace, but people look to see where the value really is in our lives. And let me give you some intangibles. There are questions I have to wrestle with too. We, we talk about how much God is worth to us. But ask yourself, and these are going to be, going to be cringe kind of questions. Think about, and this may hit most of you, none of you, we'll see. 
think about how much time and how much money you dedicate to your daily caffeine habit. How much time do you spend making the coffee, standing in line to get the coffee? How much money do you spend daily to get the coffee? How does God measure up to that level of value in terms of time and money? If you were to add up all the cups of coffee you buy, how does it compare to what you put in the plate on a Sunday morning? How, how about how much you eat out in a week? How, many, how, how does God value alongside how much you eat out, where you eat out, the time you take to eat out, the amount of money that you're willing to pay for a good meal and to tip for the service, the time and the money, where does God compare to that value weekly? In terms of the time and the resources that you contribute to God. How often do you clean up or fix your house in a month? Fix up your house. How many of you have poured so much time and so much money into fixing up your house, adding on, building up, cleaning up, fixing up, and where does God fall in the same allotment of time and resources? This is the one that really hurts. Think about the efforts that you make to make sure you can get away on a vacation to get the time off from work, to take care of everything you need to do, the money that you put aside to go on vacation. And if you're willing, ask yourself, if you were sitting down with the Lord and it was a balance sheet, the amount of time that you dedicate to not only planning but taking that vacation, the amount of resources you put aside, how does it compare to the time and money you give to this God? Nobody likes these questions. Some of you right now are saying, how dare you? How dare you? That's my business. Well, no, it's not. It's not just your business. It's God's business. This, these kind of questions are reflective of what we truly value and believe. You know, notice something. Moses is given an exhaustive list. We can all agree on that. It's an exhaustive list. But what's but behind it, as we said, is it's all stuff that they had. It's all stuff that they could get. Some of us in hearing all this, when we hear about our, I mean, questioning my daily caffeine, I need that coffee, or questioning, I needed to fix up my house, or I need that vacation. No one's questioning that. No one's questioning the, that God wants us to be able to have those kind of rewards or things in our lives. It's a question of where do they come in priority? And no one is saying that we have to forsake everything for this God per se. The stuff that Moses is told to give is an exhaustive list. It almost seems impossible. But the irony, the secret behind it, is that it was a list that was doable. God provides a list that every giver could meet. The implication of the term contribution that's used in this passage is that each person was asked to give in proportion to what they had. Not everyone had gold to give, but they had goat hair. And not everyone had goat hair to give, but they could give olive oil. The idea is that God calls us to give to participate and he doesn't force us. We're invited and when we all participate, it all gets provided. Each person, the people were to offer from what they already had. They were asked to contribute. They weren't forced to, they were invited. And that's what God asks for us, to give from what we have. Not to give beyond what, is, what we have, but to give from what we have been given. And when we do this, notice what God is asking for here. When we give from what we have been given, we give our best. And God wants us to offer our best. God wants us to offer our best. Because when we offer what is most valuable to us, we communicate that God is most valuable to us. But even more than that, more than something egotistical for God, that somehow if we don't offer our best, it offends God's ego, 
God wants us to offer our best because when we offer our best to God, we receive the best that God wants to give to us. When we offer our best to God, we understand that that best is received from God in the first place. When we rely on what the Lord has given, when we trust God as our provider, we give freely because we know the Lord is all we need. And so in a, another way, giving is an act of trust, of recognition of God's provision. So another way to ask this question for us this morning is, are you giving your best to God? If you don't like the specific things I called out, are you giving your best to God? If you're like most people, probably not. To put it another way, where are you looking for tomorrow's needs? Honestly, where are you looking for tomorrow's needs? Most of us are looking within ourselves for tomorrow's needs. Consider where most of us live. We live busy lives. We're overcommitted. Too many demands. Why do we live this way? Not living out of our best, but living out of our leftovers. Because we're convinced we've got to do it. We've got to supply it. We've got to provide it tomorrow. Because it's not going to come some from somewhere else. And therefore, when God gets brought into the equation, when we hear about God in church or in devotionals or in other places, are we, all of a sudden we give out of guilt and so we'll show up at church every so often. All right, okay, we'll help out. And our engagement in this relationship with this God is irregular. We will do it if we have extra time. We'll do it if there's anything left over. Most of us are giving less than our best. We're exhausted because we're still operating out of the illusion that we are self-made people. Whether we, whether we say we believe that or not, we act as though tomorrow is only going to happen if I make it happen. It's great that the world didn't end yesterday. It's great that Jesus didn't come back. But if you were like me for a moment, did it give you pause? Were you ready? There are so many parables that Jesus teaches about when he comes back that have to do with money and possessions with people who are holding on to things rather than saying, letting them go. Did, you, did, you, did we even flirt with that yesterday? I'll confess, for a moment I did. God wants us to realize that we're not self-made people. That's an illusion. It's an illusion that's a delusion. And the delusion of thinking that we're self-made people is that we take credit for everything we have. We tell ourselves, well, I earned it, therefore I deserve it. And the problem with that is, it's based on a false premise. I don't know anyone's sto everyone's story here, but I can tell you for every single person, no matter who you are, even if you started with nothing, you started with something. We all started with all kinds of gifts, health, education, support from key people growing up, things that we look past, a generous dose of advantageous genes. And these very things that we look past, that somehow we think we earned, we had nothing to do with. God provided. God provided. Beloved, when we live as though we are self-made, it's like living on leftovers. But when we live understanding that God is our provider and we give God our best, we live off of first fruits. We live off of the best. Because the best comes from God. So I ask you, where do you look for tomorrow's needs? Where are you looking for tomorrow's needs? Be exhaustive, not just the food that you're going to put on the table, the mortgage payment you're going to make, the education of your children, the college they're going to go to, your retirement fund, any of those things. Where are you looking for those needs to come from? From within yourself or from God's hand? Because here's the thing. God wants to do more 
than the very little that we pray for. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But the incredible thing about this God is God wants to give us more than just our daily bread. God wants to transform our lives. Now, I'm not preaching this message this morning. I didn't skip ahead in Exodus in case some of you in the back of your head are thinking that because I'm trying to make a pitch for money. On the one hand, and you heard me say it a couple of weeks ago, we're probably going to end in a deficit this year in terms of our budget. Giving is down. Yes, we need people to give if they can more. Not just in terms of finances, but also in terms of time. We need people to step up. We are experiencing a deficit, but I'll stand before you now. I'm not pitching for money or for time because I know that God will provide. Because God always does. I know that God has already provided. You're here. It's not my job to get you to give your money or your time. It's God's job. And I know that we have everything we need between those who come to this church to do the things that God's called us to do because God calls those to fulfill the vision that he gives us. This isn't a sales pitch. It's an invitation. And it's not mine, it's God's. It's an invitation to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. Do you notice that when God calls for this offering and when he tells the people to give as their heart moves them to give, he doesn't say give to the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? He says, give to me. The people aren't giving to the tabernacle, though that's where it will go. What they're really giving to is to God. God has a blueprint for what will come next. But what they're really giving to is God's plan, God's pattern. And in the same way, you're giving here at Grace, if this is where God's called you, is to God's plan and pattern here at Grace. And in the same way, think about this, some of us are, are reluctant to give until we see, well, where exactly is that money going to go? Well, where exact, how is that exactly going to be spent? Can you imagine for Moses and the people, okay, God wants you to give. Here's the stuff he wants you to give. He's got a tabernacle. Well, what's it going to look like? What color is the carpet going to be? Because if it's not the color I like, I'm not giving. Moses doesn't go, oh, um, well, hold on. Moses says, God calls you to give if your heart's motivated to give. And we know from this story that people responded out of the recognition of God's provision. This is an invitation to respond out of gratitude to the provision of God in your life. And when you give, you need to give. We need to give because it's a vital part of our spiritual health and growth. Because giving, as I mentioned before, doesn't just reveal our value system. Giving, when it's directed towards God, transforms our value system. It's an amazing spiritual dynamic that we see over and over again in Scripture. That we fight against, and yet it's the key to our sanctification. Our transformation as believers, as followers of Christ. When we let go... When we let go of those tangible, concrete things, money and stuff that we hold on to because they're so concrete and tangible, when we let go of them and give them to God and say, God, they're yours to begin with, take them, those things lose control over us. Jesus said himself, and he said it so beautifully, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And what he meant, again, is that whatever we honor the most, Whatever we give toward the most, whatever we invest in the most, that's where our heart will be focused. Too many believers throughout the history of the church have given to God, have seen the time in the worship service of the offering when the plate goes around. And I'm glad I'm not looking out, I'm looking this way. Because every, there are always some who go, oh, man, the plate. Or other people, that's when they go to the bathroom. Yes, we know who you are. <laughs> You know who you are. 
Or they do the, oh, you know, oh, yeah, I don't got anything. Because we look at giving to this God as a ritual. You want to talk about ritual and worship? Giving is too often seen by design, by, by the force of will by people as a ritual. We, we, we approach giving to God like we do paying our taxes. I don't know, no, no disrespect because it's our civic duty to pay our taxes, but if you're like most people, you dread the day that you have to pay your taxes. If you're like most people, right, with taxes, you do what you can to avoid paying your taxes. Right? You do what you can to delay paying your taxes. We pay money to people who can tell us how we can deduct what we have to pay. We value people who can get us to pay the bare minimum in our taxes. Some of us even evade paying our taxes. There are striking parallels to the same kind of giving to God. Where we find ways to avoid, to delay, to deduct what we can give. Because we're looking at this at giving to God as a ritual. And what this passage brings out, what the scriptures want us to understand, is this giving to God is not a ritual, it's about a relationship. Instead of thinking about giving to God like giving to the IRS, instead of seeing that plate and thinking it's the tax man coming again, how about seeing giving as a relationship? Think of the contrast between paying your taxes. All of us at some point in our lives have been in love, in love with someone who we wanted to marry, in love it's with our children as we see them grow. Think about when you love someone and giving comes into the, the, the mix of loving someone. When you love someone, when you're trying to woo someone, you want them to know how much they mean to you. You plan ways in which you can express that, ways in which you can give to them. You anticipate ways in which you can give to them. You spare no expense. Sometimes you spend beyond your means because you want to communicate to that person how valuable they are to you, how much they mean to you, and it's immediate. You don't delay. Could you imagine, Could you imagine a, a, a guy who is trying to woo a girl who approached that relationship the same way we do our taxes? Well, I want her to know I love her, but how can I delay that as much as possible? How could I avoid telling her that? What's the, can I pay someone to tell me the bare minimum I would have to do to let her know that I love her? I mean, it, we're, it's ludicrous. It goes against our every impulse. But if we look at God this way, if God is this relationship, if God is a person, even the person of Jesus Christ that we love, then rather than seeing this as an obligation, it's an opportunity to express our love. Giving to God moves us in love. It causes us to value, to delight in God more. And when we fall more in love with this God by giving ourselves away, that again, incredible spiritual dynamic is this giving to God changes not only how we value this God, but it changes how we value and we give to others. God wants us to become freely generous people. God doesn't want us to give out of obligation, guilt, or shame. God wants us to give freely and generously. He wants us to engage this world not out of fear and resistance, but out of joy. And when you give to someone you love, there's no fear or resistance. You give yourself away because there's this joy. God wants us to give our best to others, not out of obligation or guilt, but out of love. We give to our children. Not out of obligation or guilt, but because we want the best for them. We want them to have all the things we never had. All the opportunities that are before them. That's the same dynamic that God wants for us to have in relationship to Him. Those impulses towards our spouses and our children come from God. So beloved, where are you invested? 
Who do you depend on for tomorrow's needs? How much do you value this God? What's this God worth to you? I want you this morning to evaluate the portfolio of your life. And the key to this message is not that the offering is higher this week. The key to this message is that our lives are transformed by not holding back, but by giving to this God. Ask yourself this morning, you're here, you got here, you got up, you came. What would you give to see greater displays of God's glory around us today? What would you give? The greatest display of glory that Israel is ever going to see, God says, comes from participating. I'm making my tabernacle, my dwelling among you. Give. What would you give to see more people hear the gospel, to see lives filled with hope and promise, to see justice done in the name of Jesus? God is going to do it, but what would you give to see it, to participate, to be a part of it? Beloved, this morning we confront the paradox of amazing grace. It is one of the most difficult mysteries of our faith. It's an obstacle, frankly, for many. In Christ, we believe, like the Israelites, in a God who rules and controls everything, who owns everything. We therefore acknowledge that God rightly and justly gives and takes away as he pleases. And yet, just as with the Israelites, this same God calls us as believers to give to him. Worship, discipleship, transformation, the very things that we claim that we want the trajectory of our relationship with Jesus cannot and will not go forward if we do not give. It cannot happen if we hold back. We cannot receive everything unless we are willing to give everything away. If we offer a token to this God, we will have a token relationship with this God. If we offer our best then that is what we will have, the best relationship with this God. But make no mistake, you can't sit on the fence. Beloved, it's not our money that God wants. If you're hearing that, let me say it again. It's not our money that God wants. It's not our stuff. It's us. Our love, our appreciation, our gratitude to be a part of God's family. This God, our God, seeks to dwell, to tabernacle, to make his sanctuary with us. And he has built his home in our hearts in the most profound and everlasting way through his son, Jesus Christ. And out of this provision, out of this relationship, God calls us to make an offering. So let us this morning, let us every day of our lives with glad praise point to God as our highest treasure. Let us offer ourselves with faith-filled desire for God to use our gifts, what he has given to us to spread his glory. And as we give this way, let us be assured that God will change us, that we will experience greater joy, less fear, less resistance, and greater joy and peace. Let us never forget that what we offer to this God, what we give isn't even ours. We are contributing someone else's money. Someone else's stuff, treasures gained in Egypt, a $10 bill that our dad gave us to buy a present for mom. In many ways, in every way, our gifts are the gifts of someone else's resources. But the gratitude, the commitment that what we offer represents, that is ours. And that is a gift 
infinitely more precious to this God than money. That is a gift that no one can give but you and me. Amen?